What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. I got to tell you, this podcast is a labor of love because right now my newborn is screaming in the other room. My other kids are running up and down the hallway because, you know, it's nighttime and that's what they like to do right before bed. And all I need is like three minutes of peace and quiet to record this intro. (sighs) And we'll see how it goes. Anyways, this week on the show, we're talking about the pandemic. You know, that thing that disrupted all of our lives for years that all of a sudden seemingly is in the rearview mirror. The question is... What did we learn from it? Or even better, what will we do differently going forward? That was a question I had on my mind. So I reached out to authors of the new book called The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. In this episode, we are talking with Joe Nocera. And Joe is a columnist for the Free Press. His journalism has appeared in all types of publications, Esquire, Bloomberg, New York Times. He's written for and produced some top podcasts, and he wrote a book about a decade ago called All the Devils Are Here, which was about the financial crisis. So Joe has spent pretty much since 2020 until now trying to understand the pandemic, its impacts, what we did right, what we did wrong. And he has a history as a journalist of looking at big global events and trying to evaluate what caused them, what happened, and how can we be better. Also, for those in the States, you might be listening to this on your way to a family Thanksgiving. 
And what we would say is if you are, when you're sitting around that table, enjoying your mashed potatoes and gravy and turkey and all that good stuff, you should say to your family, you know what I'm thankful for? This amazing podcast called Smart People Podcast. And you should tell them all about it. And we should see a huge spike as soon as the holidays are over. That would be an amazing holiday present. Please share the love. Let's get into it. My conversation with Joe Nocera as we talk about his brand new book, The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. Enjoy. I got your book here, uh, The Big Fail, and I got to start off right out of the gate because I like to come out hot. Fauci, friend or foe? Neither. Neither. Yeah. Um, yeah. My basic view on Fauci is um, he was an absolutist when he should have been humble about mm. what we could and what we could not do and what we knew and what we did not know about uh, the virus. What I can't understand is why do we always make that same mistake with people in power? Why do our politicians, why do our scientists, why do the people who are supposed to have our best interests at heart, why do they have the inability to explain nuance and show a lack of absolutism? Uh, it's a good question. I think in Fauci's case, uh, it's because he'd been doing this for so long. You know, he'd been a hero during a, first he'd been the villain, and then he was a hero uh, during the AIDS crisis. Um, and then he'd been through swine flu, uh, Zika, uh, uh, Ebola, uh, H1N1. He'd been through them all. Yeah. So, you know, this was um, a different kind of virus that um, affected people in a different way. And um, I think that he thought that his read on what should and should not be done was the right one and that um, he'd been doing this for so long he knew best. Mm. And, and, and in fact, we as a country would have been far better off if he had said, for instance, when he said, you don't have to wear masks very early on, if he'd said and said, look, we don't really know yet if masks are going to help or not. But right now, we don't have enough of them, so we got to preserve the ones we have for our healthcare workers. And then, then, then let's see as we proceed, you know, and then there's all kinds of things like that um, along the way. And that, you know, it caused, um, it caused people eventually to stop trusting the government. And uh, I think I'm not blaming this solely on Fauci, but to be sure, sure. but um, I think it, 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 it wound up harming our ability to mitigate the pandemic because people just started at a certain point, they started to let the public health advice go in one ear and out the other. I actually wrote down a quote from the book. You say, if we use the term pandemic, people are going to freak out. Somebody's a high ranking official. And I feel like that's one of the frustrations with people is, is that the government's place to determine, you know, how we will behave if they give us honest information? Yeah. And I think that, um, I think, uh, along with that, is the fact that they didn't really take human behavior into account until it was too late. In other words, what were these mitigation measures? What was a lockdown? What was masks? What was social distancing? What was shutting down sports arena? How is it going to cause people to react and to behave? Mm. And they didn't think a lot about that. Um, and 
so you know what happens to, to let, let's get into 2021 or so and um uh you know people start stop stop wearing masks on the subway and then mm-hmm. they, they don't get sick and so they start to think ugh what do these guys know they're not telling me you know my my experience as a human is different from what the CDC is telling me I need to do to stay alive. Mm. So why should I listen to anything they say? And then the negative implication of that being, again, applying the same logic to everything and therefore the problem we get into when trying to understand something that we didn't understand. Right. And still don't understand in many ways. I mean, we don't, why, why does it, why did it come in waves? Mm. Why was one part of the country hit and not another country? Part, and then then it would switch around. Why did all of that happen? We don't yeah. know. To this day, we don't know. Well, and that actually brings me to a question I had. You've mentioned it a couple times thus far. You start the book talking about masks. Can you answer the question even today if they're helpful? Um, yeah, I kind of I, I kind of can actually. Okay. Um, I was talking to um, Michael Osterholm about this. He's a very um, prominent. Uh, University of Minnesota uh, epidemiologist who was quoted a lot during the pandemic. And he basically said, you know, if you have an N95 and you wear it properly, you're being protected. Hmm. But, you know, if you have a surgical mask and you go into a restaurant and you take the mask off to eat and then you put the mask back on, how have you been protected? So the real answer is that Anyone can protect themselves on an individual level with a mask if they have the right mask and if they wear it properly. But 95% of the population is never going to do that. They're going to wear the mask under their nose. You know, they're going to take it off sometimes. They're going to wear a cloth mask that doesn't do any good. So on a society-wide basis, you definitely can say masks don't work. On an individual basis, you can say, if you do it right, they do work. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. So to zoom out a little bit, there's a couple of places I want to start. I know that you and your co-author also wrote a book back in 2010, All the Devils Are Here, about the financial crisis. Right. And her name is Bethany McLean. Let's not, let's not forget that. She's an, ama- she's an amazing journalist. Great. And and you and Bethany, I know, work well together, and that's why you, you picked up this book together. My question is, to tackle the financial crisis of 2010 and then the pandemic uh, a decade later, how frustrated do you get at our inability to learn from historical issues? Or do you think that we actually are good at reflecting on these big events? Well, we're, we're terrible about reflecting on COVID, and we'll get to that in a minute. Bethany makes a powerful case in the book. She's really the Fed expert and the, and the Wall Street expert of the two of us, that um, in their efforts to mitigate the financial crisis, the Fed, that's when the Fed began this process of getting interest rates down to zero, uh, long-term bond buying program that really had never been meant to be long term it was supposed to be a short term fix during the during the during the crisis and then it never stopped and mm. you know bethany bethany's view is that you know this was a this was a wild overreaction that that and it and it harmed us because it wound up giving us inflation and it also caused a lot of um 
deal making uh, private equity in, this, in particular that wouldn't have happened because interest rates were so low. So um, that so the frustration was seeing them do something that helped in 2008, 2009, and then kind of failing to stop it when it was no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, the financial crisis also, though, did lead to um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, legislation aimed at uh, taming the banks. And as Bethany points also points out in the book, with that, you know, that, that was a good thing. But what it did was it caused so much of uh, high-level high banking and trading and so on to be pushed to what she calls the shadow banking system, the hedge funds and so on that are unregulated. And so that really had, that, that it's had a negative effect on the society because, you know, the government doesn't really have much control over them or know what they're doing. And, um, and they have had several crises, including one leading up to the, um, uh, uh, leading up to COVID. So, hmm. um, so yeah, that is frustrating. And this one, the one thing they did after the financial crisis that made a lot of sense was they had a commission to try and figure out what went wrong. And um, for the most part, it, it worked very well. And we've had that historically in this country. We had it when the Challenger exploded. Uh, we had it actually after the um, crash of 19... Uh, uh, when was it? Why am I blanking on this? The crash of 2029 uh, that led to the Depression. Mm. Uh, we have historically had commissions that tried to figure out what went wrong and try to figure out how to avoid it happening again. In this case, we haven't had that. And we're probably not going to have it because the country is so polarized over these issues. Mm-hmm. If you put five Republicans and five Democrats on a commission, the Democrats will all say lockdowns save lives and the Republicans will all say lockdowns hurt the economy and didn't save any lives. And mm-hmm. so what have you, what have you discovered? You know, you right. know, so. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. 
The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hims.com Slash smart prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. Do you think that if you were to put these 10 politicians in a room, five Democrats, five Republicans, they would actually believe that line and and how black and white it is or do you think it's just too difficult today to have nuance and to explain things in a moderate way as a politician i think it is too difficult to have nuance mm. but i also think it is true i i don't think these guys are faking it i think it's true belief really i mean gavin newsom signed a law in california to punish doctors who spread misinformation. Well, what is misinformation? Hmm. What is it? Well, I mean, he would, he would characterize it as anything that strayed from the you know, public health establishment line. But the public health establishment line hasn't always been right. Right. I was just about to say, you the know? pandemic proved and, that, uh, right? <laughs> but, but that's true belief. And then the flip side is, you know, the, the right really has come to the view that masks were a waste of time, lockdowns were a waste of time, social distancing was a waste of time, and then eventually, not everybody on the right thinks this, but you know, a lot of them eventually came to the view that vaccines were more harmful than good, which was, is, is insane. Hmm. That's a bold statement. You genuinely think, from your perspective, many of them think that the vaccines are not just a waste of time, but a net negative? Oh, absolutely. They talk really? about uh, my... Remember when that football player for the Bills collapsed? Remember that? Yes, he had, I do. He basically had a heart attack on the field. Yep. So nobody knew then whether he had been vaccinated or not. Right. And yet immediately from the right, they said, oh, this is because he was vaccinated. He's had a heart attack because he has myocarditis uh, uh, or whatever you call right. it. I'm yeah. bad on that kind of name. Well, they had no idea. They had absolutely no idea. So, uh, yes, I, there's no question that there's a very, um, uh, a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. type view wow. uh, that vaccines are harmful and that they're especially harmful to children. Now, my view is that um, they're not, I mean, yes, they are, there are some people who have uh, side effects, but that's been true of vaccines forever, all kinds sure. of vaccines, polio, smallpox, whatever. Um, uh, my view, though, is that uh, children don't need the vaccine because uh, um, so few children get COVID. Right. You know, the book is called The Big Fail, 
And I, I think that's an interesting one because obviously it insinuates that we failed. Why was it such a failure? I know there's many reasons, but what is the biggest reason in your mind that we can say, look, we didn't do right. We didn't do well. The biggest reason really has nothing to do with how we dealt with the pandemic in the here and now. The biggest reason has to do with trends that had taken place in American capitalism over the previous 30 or 40 years that we don't even think about anymore that mm. wound up having disastrous effects on hospitals, nursing homes, and shortages of supplies like nitrile gloves and, and, um, and masks. And so, let me, I mean, I need to, let me drill down a little on this. Okay, so where, in percentage terms, more people died in nursing homes than any place else. And if you, the Times stopped doing this, but the New York Times for a long time uh, was, uh, cal was calculating the percentage of deaths per state that took place in nursing homes. And some of them were astounding. There was like New Hampshire's like 65%. I mean, astounding numbers. Wow. And, and, and even in the low, you know, it'd be like as low as 30 or 25%. It'd be as high as 70%. It was just amazing mm. numbers. And why did, this, why did this happen? The answer is, the main answer is because nursing homes had been stripped to the bone by private equity firms and other entrepreneurs. And uh, they had debt that they really couldn't afford. So, you know, they have to lay off nurses and staff and um, uh, patients and, and residents don't get, don't get quality of care and et, et cetera, et cetera. And this is completely preventable. And the reason we know this is because, of the, because in San Francisco, the largest nursing home in the country, 700-some-odd residents, is run by the city, not by a private equity firm. Hmm. And they had plenty of staff, and they did it right, and they, they, they sheltered their people in place. And as of March 2023, 10 people had died in that nursing home. Wow. So it tells you that if you do it right, if you could do it right, you can save lives. But we, but but we had had we had this situation, this this setup where nursing homes were like, you know, um, they, they were like they, they were out of a Dickens novel. Hmm. Um, so that's one example. The second example is, you know, globalization, which nobody really um, gave much thought to. But you know, globalization became this nirvana for companies that caused them to shut factories, lay off workers, move everything to China set up just-in-time um, supply chains, but they never thought about what happens if there's an emergency. What happens if there's a crisis? So now we're hit with a crisis. The Chinese may have contracts to send masks to America, but they're not going to do that in a crisis. They're going to keep it for themselves. Right. So all of a sudden, every hospital is scrambling for masks, scrambling for nitro gloves. Mm -hmm. They don't have any... There's no resilience in the system. So that's a second way that, um, a big way. And then a third way is the way the hospital system has evolved, where the big fancy 
uh, hospital chains, you know, um, they do fine, but they don't have the population that's really sick with COVID. And those people go to these hospitals that, that, that are, you know, uh, right. kind of a mess that they do the best they can, but they don't have the facilities. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the machinery. They, they don't have the money. They're, they're mm-hmm. dependent on Medicaid, which doesn't pay anywhere near enough. So, you know, you have some hospitals that are just completely overloaded and people are dying left and right. And you have other hospitals that, you know, I'm not saying they're empty, but they're not overflowing with, with, uh, with COVID patients. Those are three great examples, and I'm glad you brought those up. I want to dig into some because, you know, anybody who listens with regularity knows that I have left leaning, but I'm definitely not a zealot or anything like that. And oftentimes, let's take the nursing home example. I I get stuck in the middle because if it's not for capitalism, we don't get some of the innovation. I also, I live near Washington, D.C. The government is highly wasteful and inefficient. So privatizing something versus making it public, I don't know. But in this instance, it worked. What made the difference there in the San Francisco one? They paid their staff enough so they didn't have Mm. a huge turnover. You know, they were able to lock people down. They were able to take care of the patients. So the staff could be tested to see if they had COVID. They don't have COVID. They come in. They test, they, they, they test all the patients. You know, they're not... One thing that happened as people would die in the other nursing homes, they would need to fill the bed to make money. Oh. You know? And so somebody right. else would come in, new, they'd get sick or they'd spread it or whatever. Um, hmm. And so th- in San Francisco, that didn't happen. It had a very stable population as well. So you're right about the government being inefficient. And, 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 and the way I think about it um, is that in the case of nursing homes and hospitals, if you're going to have a private system, a capitalist system, you've got to set the right rules. Right. You've got to have rules about how many, how, the number of staff. You've got to have rules about what percentage of the revenue can be debt. I mean, I, I, you know, I, what really offends me is the way um, private equity firms raped and pillaged nursing homes for yeah. their own benefit, put it in their pocket, and then they walk away. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, did, they, did, they, did they step up during the pandemic? A few of them did, but most of mm-hmm. them didn't. And... Right. Um, I, you know, honestly, I came to the view by the end of the book that there should not that private equity should not be allowed into the healthcare system. They have no purpose. The, you know, hospital. Most industries profit profitability and uh, is 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 doesn't clash with the purpose of the company. Yes. Right. With, with hospitals and nursing homes and healthcare in general, it definitely clashes. You know, if a hospital wants to have a more profitable quarter, they got to do more surgeries because that's the way the system right. works. Maybe those surgeries are necessary. Maybe they're not. Hmm. Or you got to have, a, or you gotta have a, a monopoly in one area so you can, you, can, you can hold up the insurance companies to force them to pay more than they should. 
you know? Yeah. Or in the case of private equity, you know, you, you, you sell the land. I mean, the first thing they often do is they sell the, the land to a REIT, a real estate mm-hmm. investment trust, and then pull that money out as profit. And now the private equity firm has to pay, and excuse me, and the, now the nursing home has to pay rent on land that they used to own, right? And then in addition, yeah. don't forget, the way private equity works is they, they buy something. This is any kind of company. And they mostly use debt because that's how they make money. And they right. put the debt on the balance sheet of the company that they bought. So the nursing home company now has to not only pay rent, but pay they have to pay back the debt that the private equity firm used to buy it in the first place. Well, that's crazy. That's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. And when I was reading your book and I'm going through and you talk about the healthcare system, because it's not just nursing homes, but hospitals, as you mentioned, I just had a virtual appointment with a doctor and uh, she said, why didn't you go to your primary care physician for this? And I said, because I called him, they said it would take three weeks, which is absurd. And she goes, three weeks is nothing. I hear from people that can't get in for three months. And she explained to me due to the pandemic, and this is why I'm telling the story, I'd love your perspective on it, that highly due to the pandemic, they also knew there was going to be a physician shortage prior to the pandemic. It's just, it's at a breaking point. Right. The nursing uh, shortage is even worse, actually. Is Nurses, that, one thing that happened in the pandemic is that nurses just got ground down. They just, yeah. um, and you know, this is the thing that's killed them. You know, you're in a pandemic, right? So suddenly you can't do those extra surgeries, right? Mm. You can't make that extra money. Right. So what's their response? They start laying off nurses in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. That happened all over the country, all over the country. And um, it's just, you know, it's again, it's another one of those things, you know, they, they, they care about their bottom line and patient care is secondary. They will never admit that, but it's true. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, again, this gets to the, you know, the big picture of why, why we failed mm-hmm. was because we had a, we had a healthcare system that was not set up to succeed in an emergency. If you look at that, do you see any, I mean, do you see not just an end in sight, but this is going to happen again in some context? Will we take any of these lessons forward? I don't know. Um, I think that in the case of globalization, things are start are actually changing because it turns out in the end, it wasn't just PPE and, and, um, and nitro gloves that were short, but eventually we had a shortage of um, semiconductors. We had all kinds of shortages. I mean, really serious shortages of, um, what's the drug? Um, Adderall. We can't get any Adderall. There's a huge Adderall shortage in America. Hmm. Um, you know, there's just all kinds of things like that. And what you are seeing is a lot of talk, at least, about um, pulling back a little bit on globalization so that we make more things at home. That's certainly something the Bush, the, excuse me, the Biden administration is is pushing for. Um, you know, it, 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 but the flip side of that, it, it means that things will cost a little more. Now, right. countries like Germany, Germany is a really good example. They are, they have, they accept that price. Hmm. Um, 
And in return, their workers uh, have a lot more say than our workers do in how companies are run. They usually have uh, the head of the union. Uh, their unions are on the board of the companies and so on. So they have a different. Right. They don't. They have a different system. Um, you know, would would the hospital system change? No, but the private uh, the um, nursing home system might change. Here's the other thing, though: the next pandemic pandemic might not hit the elderly. It might hit children. Right. Exactly. You just don't know. And yep. um, I mean, in this pandemic, it took a while. For people to figure out that children were uh, relatively safe yep. from the pandemic, even when they got it, most of the time it was they, it was asymptomatic. So, yep. um, uh, you know, the influenza pandemic of the nineteen eighteen it, it it was it was it killed kids, it killed middle class people, it killed elderly people, middle class middle aged people elderly people. It was indiscriminate. This, this pandemic was a lot more discriminating. The older you got, uh, the, the more likely you were to go to the hospital or to die. Mm -hmm. The younger you were, the less likely, um, which gets into all these issues about how uh, public health, how the public health establishment explained all this to the public um, and the ramifications of that. Well, and there's a couple of areas you you highlight specifically, and we've talked about some. Another one you focus on is the education system and the impact it had on that. Tell us what you learned there. Well, let me preface this by saying that when the pandemic first hit New York in mid-March uh, 2020, nobody really knew for sure how... Um, bad it would be for kids or anybody. So it made sense really to shut everything, to shut the schools down for a while, just get this all sorted out. Um, but by the summer of 2020, it was pretty clear, and it become pretty clear that um, the children were largely unaffected. And that, I mean, it was geometric. I mean, the, 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 the chances of an elderly person um, dying of COVID was like a thousand times more than a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people started calling for uh, schools to be reopened, some people. Um, this was, you know, resisted mightily by the teachers' union. And um, uh, and, it, and, and in, in the big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., you know, they didn't open for a very long time. And this was incredibly damaging to uh, disadvantaged kids who lived in public school. Uh, excuse me, who who went to public school. They they, mm -hmm. they 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 not only missed out on learning, but you know, schools would hand, there were free meals that schools hand out. There were you know social aspects of school that are important for for people kids who lived in dangerous neighborhoods. Schools were a safe place to be. You know they they had a lot of the the failure to reopen schools was um, tragic. There are still like 300,000 kids nationwide who basically dropped out of school during COVID and have never rejoined the school system. Wow. That's a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. and, um, and for this, I believe at least part of the blame belongs to the 
public health establishment. You know, this is where you were talking about nuance and the lack of nuance. You know, this is where they should have been telegraphing loud and clear the distinction between an elderly person and a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old. And they should mm-hmm. have been showing, illustrating to parents what the risks were versus what the upside was of going to school. And, mm-hmm. you know, my, my ultimate view is that um, of all the things that went wrong during COVID, the closings of schools and the inability to reopen many of them for such a long time was just the single most tragic aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned up front is important uh, because I remember I've got young kids and I had young kids, obviously, during the pandemic. And I remember thinking, I'm not sending them to school initially. I remember being absolutely terrified of the pandemic for them. But to your point, once we got that data, so um, it would have been the fall of 2020. Probably uh, a little earlier than that, probably more like August or so. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, late summer, exactly when the school year was starting, we put my son into a private school that was in person, and he went all year. And I think this highlights two things, and I want to I want to ask you. My wife is also a teacher, and so she went from the public school system to the private school system during this time. And h- how could we have dealt with this um, with teachers who were scared to go into work? Uh, if they had issues, did she go in? Like did that. she go into? Did she teach in a private school system? She did in person. Okay, so I had a very similar situation. I had a I had a fourth grader in public school in New mm-hmm. York City, and it was a shit show. March, April, May, June, and I I can't blame the teacher. She had two little kids herself. She was trying to take care exactly. of exactly. She, she couldn't exactly. She didn't have time to teach us. Nope. Teach them. So I put them in private school. All the teachers went every day. They all wore masks. They all had. Um, proper ventilation. They had uh, cohorts, you know, so no one in the sixth grade had any dealings with anybody in the seventh grade or the fifth grade. They were just, they were one cohort with their teachers were a cohort. And um, uh, they, they did have some uh, COVID, but, but very nothing, nothing to be worried about. You know, look, I think, um, I don't think you should have forced teachers to come back, but I think you could have, for instance, in the private school system, I don't know if this happened with your kids, but it happened with mine, there were some kids whose parents didn't want them to go back in the classroom. So fine, they had Zoom. They did, They were actually, They were part of the classroom. They were with all the other kids. It wasn't like what had happened um, in March and April. You're, yeah. you're, it's almost like they're sitting in the classroom. The teacher could call on them just like she could call on anybody with a computer or anybody else sitting in the room. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. You could have done that with teachers. You could have allowed teachers to, you could have had a TV screen and the teacher could teach from there and you could have had a young um, a teacher's aide who could be in the classroom and help out. I mean, there are ways to do this if you think about it. Yeah. Instead of just yeah. saying, well, we have the system that we have and, and the teachers are scared and the parents are scared and the kids are scared. So, no, we can't let them go back to school. It's a good point. And I think it highlights a lot about the lack of flexibility that happens there. And like you said, the impact that the schooling had. It also highlights you talk about who we protect and who we leave behind. Right. 
you and I both just said we put our kids in private. That's school. right. Now, That's right. Now, I couldn't I couldn't afford it. My my wife's parents had to pay for it. But we still had the means. You mean so, you mean this podcast doesn't make <laughs> enough to pay for kids to be in private school? Yeah, man. If it did, it'd be a different world, right? right. But um but in truth, what did you learn about who it who we protect? And is it is it conscious that do we do this on purpose and just not and, and lie about it behind the scenes? I, you say, is it conscious? You know, yeah. a lot of it is not conscious, honestly. Think about yourself or people in your social class mm-hmm. locking down. How are you able to do that? Mm. You've got Zoom. Right? So you can do yep. work. You got your computer. You can have Zoom drinks with your friends. Yep. Oh, by the way, where are you going to get those drinks? Mm-hmm. Somebody from DoorDash is going to bring them to you. Right? And, yep. and suppose you want to get, um, I don't know, uh, get some new clothes. So Amazon. Amazon workers in the warehouse. And if you want a nice steak tonight, who's making those? Meat packers where there was tons of COVID, tons of COVID in the meatpacking uh, industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the I hate to be cruel about this, but, you know, the Zoom class was so, felt so virtuous, locking down. Good point. And so contemptuous of people in Florida and other red states that poo-pooed lockdowns and closing their economy, shutting their economy. And they just felt, and, and yet... What they didn't seem to notice, notice, that's the right word, was that other people were not able to do what they were able to do and had to go to work to service them. Right. And so, you know, how is that fit? So when you talk about who did it leave behind? Well, yeah, that, it, it left behind people who didn't have a lot of money. That's who it left behind. Yeah. Um, it left behind a lot of small business people who went out of business, uh, small restaurateurs, um, you know, a lot of people who got laid off. But, uh, you know, I will say the government did a pretty good job there of bolstering unemployment insurance. And, um, um, I mean, people seem to have enough money to uh, buy GameStop and uh, <laughs> AMC. So they could have they been too broke. It's true. No, it's true. And you know, uh, it's funny. I just got an email a couple of weeks ago from somebody providing feedback saying that, Chris, you, you talk negatively about capitalism too often. So I guess if they're listening, sorry, it's happening again. But I also, I heard you, I think it was in an interview, talk about, for example, the airline industry. And I thought it was fascinating. Yet another example of maybe with the best intent, our policies really supporting the wrong people in that we gave them all this money and what do they do with it? Tell us a little bit about that. Any other examples you have about the, you know, our inability to do it correctly. Here's another, here's another thing that has become uh, an ordinary part of American capitalism that didn't used to exist before. Um, uh, giving money, um, buying, buying back stock, stock buybacks, right? So, you know, all these airlines and tons of other companies have spent billions and billions of dollars buying back their own stock. So then the pandemic comes. Now, they're not broke. They, they have money, for sure. But they also have lobbyists. 
And Congress certainly doesn't want an airline to, you know, run into financial trouble. So they're going to give the airlines tons of money. But they say to the airlines, um, you have to employ people. If we're going to give you this money, you have to employ people. So they, they put the people on the payroll. I don't know that there's that much for them to do, but they're on the payroll. The day those deals expire, they lay everybody off. You know, and, I'll, and I don't know if the airlines did this, but there were a lot of companies that continued to do stock buybacks even during, even during the pandemic. And they all sort of said, well, you know, we, our employees come first. We're going to take care of our employees, yada, yada, yada. But they didn't. They're incapable. They're, 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 the, the thought pattern of a corporate executive is now so ingrained with maximizing shareholder value and, um, you know, doing everything they can to boost the stock at the expense of just about anything else. Do you remember when, um, this is not a pandemic related, but do you remember when American Airlines gave all their employees a dollar an hour raise and Wall Street and all the Wall Street analysts went nuts? You know, how could you do this? You're going to destroy your shares. I'm, you know, the worst part of it, I'm pro-cap, I mean, I am a capitalist. I, I've been covering um, business for 40 plus years, you know, it's in my blood, I, I, I like businessmen. I, I don't think I don't I don't think it's all a big conspiracy like a lot of lefties do. Sure. Um, but but man, it, it's just uh, it's hard to watch. Don't you think it can just be done slightly differently? I, I don't see why certain things aren't easy to fix. Well, I just I don't get it. They are easy to fix, but you almost inevitably need Congress to pass a law. Mm. And our congressional system is so up that, yeah. you know, they're so dependent on corporate money that that corporations really have the ability to squash almost anything. Look how long various Congress people have been trying to get rid of, um, you know, where they pay less taxes because everything's considered a capital gain. People have been trying to get rid of this forever so that uh, if, if you're in Wall Street, if you're in private equity, if you're a... If you if you were in a hedge fund, you pay the same tax rate as everybody else. They've mm. never been able to get it to pass. It's crazy, and you know they just have this, this, this. You know, corporate money just speaks too loudly. Yeah, it does. Well, listen, Joe. I know we don't have much time left, and one of the reasons I want to have you on is it's it's kind of crazy how far in the rear view, in my mind, the pandemic is already. Yeah. How how fast it came up. I still remember getting my first vaccination and I, I teared up because I remember thinking, I think I get some of my life back. Like I remember eating Thanksgiving dinner outside in the freezing cold with my parents because we had little kids and my parents are older and things like that. I, it, it just was such a, an important time in history. And yet I feel like it's now gone. And so I wanted to see what do you want the general person to take away from the pandemic and the work you did on it. Well, before we, we go to that, I want to just yeah. make a comment on what you just said. Of course, it's not gone. But, right, but of course. But, but it's been normalized. There you go. Now, is that bad or is it good? That's a hard thing to answer. Ultimately, humans normalize everything. You know, London was normalized during the Blitz, eventually, right? People just got used to it. I mean, just... Uh, it's what we do as 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 people. So um, 
I think that if there were another pandemic, I think we would treat it very differently. I think unless it had, unless it was killing like 20% of the population, I think we would we would deal with it in a less panicky uh, way. Now, whether that's good or bad, I, you know, I tend to think it's good, but that's that's me. Um, your question, however, was. What would you want people to take away, given that for many it's in the rearview mirror and we have accepted it and integrated it? Well, I, I think the main thing that I would want people to take away is how sad it is that we were so polarized that we could never discuss what worked and what didn't. We could never um, listen to each other about you know, did the vaccines work? You know, what was the rate of problems? Um, uh, you know, have respect for each other's decisions instead mm-hmm. of, you know, seeing people on the beach in, in Jacksonville and saying, you know, hashtag Florida morons, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and uh, you know, the people in, in, in Florida and other red states feeling equally contemptuous of people in the blue states saying, ah, why, why are they locking down? Why do they have a mask? That's, they're, they're, they're such idiots. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I realize that this is true of our politics and other parts of our society, but working on this book and even living through COVID, this is what really hit me is like, um, you know, I wrote a, we had, we had an excerpt of the book in New York Magazine, and it got a fair amount of attention, especially on Twitter. Um, and we got, I got some comments that said, doesn't it bother you that all the people who are praising your article are, are, are right-wingers? And I, and I said, you know, I, I'm not writing this for a left-wing or right-wing. I'm writing what I think is true and factual. And I don't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be putting this in buckets. Bethany, Bethany was on Twitter fairly early on during the pandemic saying things that were clearly skeptical of the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. And people would come up to her and say, I didn't know you were a Trumper. Wow. And she said, what makes you think I'm a Trumper? Because you're skeptical of lockdowns. No, no, no. You should be able to have these discussions without it being um, part of our polarized culture. Between, say, a Florida and a California, I think represent opposite approaches to the pandemic. Could you say history will define a winner? Was there a winner? Was there a better way to approach it? Well... If you adjust for age, which you have to do, because Florida had 20%, 21% of Florida's population is over 65, and only 15% of California is over 65. If you adjust for that, mm-hmm. they came up pretty much the same. Wow. California slightly, slightly better. California slightly better, but but Florida made trade-offs that they were happy with. In other words, the Florida... That's what I was going to say. The Florida Economically. Right. The Florida economy yeah. was much better. And I know a lot of people from New York who went to Florida during the pandemic because they wanted that openness. So it's, it's possible to say if they have equal outcomes in terms of you know mortality rates and Florida's economy was better, then maybe 
we are saying Florida made the better decisions. Maybe we are, you know. Maybe we maybe are. Maybe we are. Well, to learn more, you're going to have to read the book. It's called The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. Joe, really appreciate you being on the show. Um, anywhere else, where can we find you? you? Are you active on social? Uh, I am. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, uh, my, my whatever you call it, handle. What do you call it? Yeah, yeah handle sounds good. Uh, is uh, opinion underscore Joe. Opinion Joe. Okay. And um, I've been writing these days for uh, Barry Weiss's Free Press. Um, I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, I don't. it's a fantastic new outlet um, started by a woman, Barry Weiss, who left the Times because she thought it was too woke and <laughs> has um, created a very interesting journalism organization for people who don't accept the verities of the right or the left. And do you think, do you think the, I mean, obviously I know what you're going to say, but is, are you doing a good job at it? Oh, they're doing a great job. I'm not full time yeah. there. They're, they're, yeah, they're doing, they're, they're rocking it. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to have to look into it then. Cause that's what we try to do here as well. I know you got to run Joe. Really appreciate it. I, I appreciate Thanks you having time. me. I really do. It was a really fun discussion. Thank you very much. Awesome. A thank you to this week's guest, Joe Nocera. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Joe's book, The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind, is available wherever books are sold. We'll leave you with the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.